and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Love and Citizenship. I hope you and yours are well, whichever kind of the world you're listening to this episode from. And thank you again for clicking play on this podcast. This week's episode is really special to me. And it's special for a million reasons, but also because of the person Henry is and how this whole episode came about. And I did send a cold email his way, which is a running back theme for this entire podcast. But there is a bit of a backstory to this one. At the start of the pandemic, Carolano, my very good friend, reached out to me and sent me this account suggesting that I should follow them and check out the work that they're putting out because it was very much in line with the conversations that we were having at the time. And as I got roped into this Instagram account and started checking out the work that this person was putting out, I also got to know that they had a book that was about to come out. And so I ordered that book and I am so, so eternally grateful that I got to read this book and just it's it's incredible this book was called this book will make you kinder an empathy handbook and it was written by none other than our guest today henry james garrett who is truly a wonderful wonderful human being and it gives me so much joy to be able to record this intro because at the very start of when this podcast was in its i want to say thought experiment stage Henry was one of those people that I had in mind because I adore his creativity. I absolutely love what he's doing with the platform that he has. But I still was so new and I was still quite, uh, I'm struggling for the word, not confident, underconfident. Just I lacked confidence to even reach out. But having done season one, having set the plans for season two, Henry was one of the first people I absolutely knew that I wanted to have on. And in between lectures, I just sent an email and I typed it out and I wrote about what the book meant to me, how profound his work was and that just I just wanted to say thank you. And after that, thank you was just a cheeky request of like, hey, and if it's not too much to ask, would you like to come on a very new podcast and talk about your life and your creativity? And so I sent that email and I messaged Carolina and I said, guess what I've just done? I sent an email to Henry James Garrett. And at this point, I had zero expectation to to ever hear back. But I got an email reply and Henry was very kind to come on and we did an early call. And I tried my best. I tried my absolute best not to be an absolute fanboy. But I am. That book has traveled with me everywhere I've been. It's sitting on my desk at the moment. And the utter beauty of manifestation is that the entirety of first season, I didn't have a boom arm. I just perched my microphone on a stack of books. And one of the books that I always, always used to have under my microphone was this book will make you kinder. In the hopes, in some corner of my mind, hoping that one day I'd get to interview Henry James Garrett. And that day is today. Well, I interviewed him a couple of months back, but you get to hear that interview today. And it's such a wonderful conversation. It's a conversation I truly and well and truly, and I may sound like a broken record because all these conversations are so close and hold such meaning to me. But I I am well and truly, I feel privileged and exceptionally just lucky to sit across from Henry and have a conversation about something that I didn't really envision in the early drafts of whatever I was hoping this conversation to be. I had ideas of maybe wanting to talk about his creativity and wanting to talk about his life and what led him to the place he is 
And then the email happened and I got the reply and it was very real that Henry was going to be on the podcast. And in my panic, I reached out to Carolina and I said, holy shit, what do we talk about? And Carolina suggested that we should talk about our journeys as men and Henry's journey in understanding and unpacking and redefining his own masculinity and how he shows up as a man and a conversation about vulnerability and how vulnerability is seen from the perspective of men. And I don't want to spoil what's coming down the line, but I will just say I have learned so much from this conversation and I left feeling so glad, so very glad that we got to have the conversation that we did because we unpacked so much of what, how we tried to be a version of ourselves that, you know, was very untrue to us. And this is if you if you're a regular to the podcast and if you've listened to the previous episode or listened to the previous episodes, you know, these are themes that I've covered in some roundabout ways in different episodes and themes that I touch on. But questions of masculinity, the the nature of how we grew up as young men of our generation, Henry and I aren't that dissimilar in age. It all descends and is captured in this episode. And it, it, it always catches me off guard, the things that come up in this conversation. And it's, it's a wonderful conversation. It truly, again, at the risk of being a broken record, just so, so <laughs> unbelievable to me even now that I got to have this conversation. But I could be here rambling on about how much Henry's work means to me, what it's done for me and the, the journeys that I have taken on ever since I followed that Instagram account and read that book. I've gifted this book to so many people at this point. But just if Henry, you, you're, if you're listening to this, mate, I just want to say thank you again. I already thanked you a couple of times, but at the risk of doing it again, I just want to say thank you for coming onto this podcast and having the conversation and not just only kind of bringing in your vulnerability, but also holding space for me to be vulnerable as we do at so many points in this conversation. I will never run out of good things to say about Henry, but all I will say before I open the platform to him is just a big, massive fucking thank you for coming onto the podcast and embracing all the vulnerability and all the uncomfortable feelings and all the feelings in general that kind of come up in this episode. And if you are a new listener on the podcast, do consider checking out the older episodes and check out the links in the show notes or description to see what Henry's up to and follow what he's up to next. But without further wait, the wonderful, the truly incredible Amana feels so incredibly privileged and exceptionally lucky to have had on this podcast. And I hope that I continue to have conversations with going forward. Henry James Garrett. Well, thank you for having me. And yeah, I can say that Pram's email was so lovely that I was like, oh, got to do that. <laughs> um, so, so, so lovely and overly complimentary. But, you know, everyone likes a bit of that. I'm Henry. I'm probably most known as uh, an illustrator slash cartoonist. Built up a bit of an Instagram following doing sort of political cartooning. And on the back of that, I got to write the philosophy book that I had already always wanted to write, which is called This Book Will Make You Kinder, an Empathy Handbook. Mm -hmm. And now in the post book chapter of my my work, I'm uh, I'm working on a, a children's book, but I am trying to be a screenwriter. So I think when I describe myself, I think I say I'm I'm a writer mm -hmm. who used illustration as a bit of a way in. To, to, to both career-wise, but also for me personally, it's, it's been a good way and creatively. I know I said this to you 
before we recorded, but like I tend to share like a set of questions with the guests on the podcast. And the irony of it all is I have so many questions on the page that you and I have both looked at and I want to get through each one of them. But chances are we'll only get through five of them because we'll shoot off on a tangent. But I'm I'm genuinely quite for anybody that hasn't read Henry's book, I mean, what are you doing? But also, if you want a nutshell of like why I maybe was so drawn to it, I have been exploring questions around like my masculinity, what it means to be, you know, I was raised in a way where like vulnerability does not equal masculinity, whereas your book is entirely embracing a lot of vulnerability. And I think the book invites the reader to explore a lot of uncomfortable things that they may hold or explore things that they haven't really thought about or gives them a new way to maybe think about things. And I think it's very reflective of a model of, I mean, I use this word, but it has so many meanings. And I know it's, I mean, we can all define masculinity in our own ways. But I think it's a departure from that Marlboro man, the stoic, I don't know, Al Pacino's from the Godfather masculinity. Sort of, this can go on forever, but I think to lay the foundation down, uh, what was kind of your model of masculinity growing up, of what it meant to be a man? I've been thinking about this a lot. Mm-hmm. I did actually do an interview with Charlie Craggs. I don't know if you know her, but we we had like a little chat for Glamour magazine about mm-hmm. masculinity, which is actually going to come out tomorrow, I think. But, you know, obviously this podcast will be listened yeah. to in the future. Yeah. So I've been thinking about masculinity a lot. I think my early model for masculinity, I think I struggle because it's very easy to narrativize yourself and it's very easy to tell like a very hard and fast and I can tell you like the simple version that I think people would like which is that you know I wanted to play with the girls on the playground like you know I felt more comfortable I was perhaps you know I I, I wanted to be an actor I was like the drama kid yeah. and I was described as sort of effeminate quite young mm-hmm. and then to a certain extent I think I had my masculinity policed and people wouldn't necessarily perceive this about me but I definitely tried to be mallier in a in a very you know normative way the the mainstream masculinity way mm-hmm. and I think I did change myself and I did cut off parts of myself and I would say it's only over the last few years that I've returned to myself. But that whole story that I've just told, I feel is a bit of a caricature. Mm-hmm. I struggle with this idea, this gets quite philosophical, but like I think that people like the idea that there's like this authentic you that's born prior mm-hmm. to like social conditioning. Mm-hmm. And like the the me prior to social conditioning was like not very masculine, potentially like leaning more into the into certain feminine qualities and then like I got pushed away from that and then I've fought my way back to like the authentic me yeah and I can tell that story but it doesn't feel wholly true because I don't think that there is an authentic you prior to socialization I think we emerge as selves in concert with those those social pressures and and and, and the social models that that we see around us and I think when we're a similar age right and I think yep. when when we grew up, um, I don't know if this this was so present for you, but there was this image of, there was this concept of the metrosexual man. Oh, yeah. And it's such an interesting thing, isn't it? It was this way of of saying, like, this guy is straight. Like, uh-huh. you know, be sure he's straight. He's definitely straight. Like, yeah. centering the, the straightness. <laughs> but he also likes, you know, 
looking yeah. after himself, wearing nice clothes, going shopping. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's inherently like, I think the idea of the metrosexual man and the way yeah. it was presented is an inherently homophobic yeah. idea because it was about distancing oneself from like, I'm going to do all these things and it's great, mm-hmm. but don't perceive me as homosexual. Yeah. And so we had that sort of model available to us. And I do think the world in which I've grown up in, mm-hmm. and I don't know how true this was for you, there was like the caricature manly man mm-hmm. available as a model. And there was a, l- a lot of masculinity in my early life was based around sport and being good at sport. But there was there were also other options that still were normative masculinity. Mm-hmm. So there were ways of departing from that that manly man, Marlboro man, as you said, yeah. that I think weren't challenging to masculinity at all. Like mm-hmm. you can you can create a little bit of room. And I think, you know, this this is a, like this is something that happens a lot, right? That the the movements get co-opted. And I think there's a very superficial way in which in certain social classes there's room for a little bit of movement away from more normative masculinity. But it it doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't actually challenge anything. Mm-hmm. So I think what I'm saying is like we can we can point to that caricature, that model, but there were there were other models available. But yeah. but a lot of the normative models available still do nothing to challenge masculinity as I'm interested in now challenging it. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. I could have been a very acceptable metrosexual man, mm-hmm. but that's still not what I'm interested in. And that, that's still and if there is any notive notion of an authentic self, that's still not capturing, I think, the return to an authentic self that I'd be interested in. Yeah. What do you think? Did you do you feel like there was only available to you? Do you, do you see? Do you, do you kind of agree with me that there were there were options yeah. available? Yeah. So I, I I'd have to in the sense that okay. So the thing that I would really agree with for me was yes, mm. there was, and the reason I think any time I discuss masculinity or like what was offered to me, the Marlboro Man stands there because mm. I mean Bollywood is such a big part of India. Right. And like my grandparents and my parents, everybody's just like our lives revolve around who the next big actor or the next big movie would have been. And a lot of those big leading men for the longest time were, you know, cigar in the mouth, few words, angry. James Bondy. Like, exactly. That's our same mythos, oh, right? Yeah. 100%, 100%. Exactly that. And so, yes, there were deviations from that, but you, you nailed it in the sense that, yes, there were different types of masculinity, but they were never challenging these notions. And what I find so interesting about the metrosexual man is we had those. We had these in the, I'm going to say late 90s, early 2000s. So when I would have been growing mm-hmm. up, we had these Indian Indian actors and uh, models who, you know, in every which way were really flamboyant, really looking after themselves. But also the caveat it always was, was like, actually, we're very straight. But also look at how like my, my hair is curled a certain way or like, you know, I'm showcasing my body in a very artistic way. But no, no, let's not get any assumptions. I am very, very, very straight. And I find it now quite hilarious. But for me, yeah. it never made sense. And I have would have to agree. I don't think, I mean, I can bring a psychoanalytic lens to this, but I don't think at the start of your life, you have this ideal self that is then imposed on. I think, yeah, you much of your life is trying to unpack who you really are from the experiences that tell you who you should be. And one of the things that I I really would like to maybe ask you is, you know, you talked about how you pulled pieces of yourself away or like you tried to conform to a more manly model of who you were supposed to be. 
what was that like? What, what, A, what was the model that you personally were like, oh, this is what I need to be like now? But also, what were the parts of you that you pulled away? Mm. I think it was lad culture mm-hmm. and, you know, going to university and, and, and wanting to fit in. But, you know, leading up to that as well, the last few years of school. Mm-hmm. I think when we talk about the dangers of normative masculinity, mm-hmm. it's really important to first say that, like, masculinity harms men. Yeah. But masculinity harms people of other genders far more. And so the, the main thing that I was, was sexist. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The main thing that I was, and like, it's worth talking about because some people now point to me sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is a big thing, but like as mm-hmm. like a feminist man. Yeah. And like, I hope I am and I, and I try to be. Mm-hmm. But I bought into all that, you know, like I was quite sexist in, mm-hmm. in the normal ways that 15 year old boys raised in our culture are. and. I went a certain distance that way in that, you know, in that narrative that I'm telling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that involves, you know, I don't know, make, making sexist jokes, I guess, is the most stri- straightforward version of that. And there was so much comedy around at the time that was like, feminism is is done, like we've sorted that. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, let's just, uh, so now we can joke about anything, you know, regarding gender. Mm-hmm. And we're, it's not, <laughs> and we Absolutely. can't, but. But I, I think I bought into that. But then in terms of the, because that's sort of the external stuff, um, what mm-hmm. you do to others, in terms yeah. of the internal stuff, and it's masculinity and coolness are quite mm-hmm. inseparable. So I was trying to be, probably what I thought I was trying to do was trying to be cool. Yeah. But trying to be cool if you present as a man is mm-hmm. trying to be masculine. And that involves, you know, not liking certain things that I did like. It's, it's like a very simple expression. Mm-hmm. You know, I liked glee say yeah <laughs> now i look back from glee and i'm like that was that was a bad show for other reasons but <laughs> but like I, I liked i don't know i i i had i liked fashion magazines i had you yeah. know tastes that we don't associate with the masculine and mm-hmm. i tried to disguise that and i tried to be a different version of myself and it was a version of myself and it, and yeah it was oh, I, I think coolness and masculinity has so much to do with being unfeeling and there's there's the way in which we currently talk about that in terms of like mental health but there's also like just this real like in terms of like interpersonal stuff I think being a cool man is quite a lot to do with not reacting much just not feeling strongly about anything like you know not being like oh that's awesome that's so great like you know which is very much who I authentically am and like to be and I wasn't very good at that part of it of like you know Mm not feeling things deeply but yeah then that, that gets also deeper into not sharing not being emotionally vulnerable mm-hmm. um not telling people that you're struggling and yeah I, d- I did all of that stuff so I, I think I just took the whole the whole lot hook, hook line and sinker mm-hmm. and it's worth bearing that in mind because lots of people who you now think of as having good politics or whatever yeah. will have parts of their past that don't match with that because yeah. We live in a society. <laughs> when you were talking about liking Glee, for me, immediately it jumped to, I love Taylor Swift growing up. I used oh, to love Taylor I'm Swift. I'm just getting into her now, actually. <laughs> She's incredible. She really I is. I need to do the back catalogue. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just could never say that I like Taylor Swift. Or anytime Taylor yeah. Swift would come up, obviously boys would be like, oh, she's so hot. Like, that's not yeah. what it's about. For me, it's the music. It's the way it makes yeah. me feel. 
but obviously, and there's such a homophobia that goes with like, oh, you're gay because you like Taylor Swift. Uh, whereas mm. now I'd be like, yeah, fuck that. I like Taylor mm. Swift and that's okay. Yeah. But back then, like being labeled as gay would have been the end of my life. Was the worst thing. Yeah, and, and that's a lot of what masculinity is about, is mm -hmm. defining yourself in contrast to women and queer yeah. men and feminine people of all genders, you know? One of the things that uh, it's 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 so you, you're dead on, and I think I mean this is as true for you as it is for me. I think all of us have had to go through a journey of maybe unlearning, and I, I would like to know what your journey has been. But I think for mm -hmm. for a, a lot of us to to shell these very problematic bits that we maybe carried with ourselves for the purpose of, as you said, being cool. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was so prevalent in my kind of circles, kind of in school, was you know. The new iPhones had just come out. Technology was a new thing. Mm. Sharing the nudes of your partners would just mm. is absolutely not okay. But because you're a lad, they're like yeah, and it's it was it was so normalized as, as well. Like mm -hmm. there was there was a, and again, like we have a responsibility to know it's wrong, yeah. but there was no one saying it was wrong. Exactly. So it was quite hard for individual boys to work out. But like yeah, it it is wrong. It's sexual violence. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's a, a really interesting example. I mean, sounds like boarding school sounds tough. Um, it sounds like we would have been friends if we if we'd met back then. Maybe we would have yeah. we would have like made each other like yeah, yeah, yeah. stay a little bit. <laughs> yeah, because because my my group of friends in school were always or the ones I gravitated to were the people who secretly in like our cultish five person group while yeah. we were holding a seance, we're like talking about like, oh, how this is horrible. But the moment that room right. opens and when you go out, you're like, oh, yeah. women, hey, shit. You play the part. Yeah, you play the part. Oh, it's, it's lovely that you found those people, yeah. though. I like, I had really good friends at school mm -hmm. as well, and, and they are kind, and, and lots of them were were kinder than me, you know? And yeah. and I I went more laddie in some ways than, mm -hmm. than some of my friends. And, it, and it's just so interesting because like, yeah, I mean, maybe we now strike people as like quite self-assured yeah. men. I, I don't know if, if if that's how how people sort of read you, but mm -hmm. people think of me as like quite confident and like, mm -hmm. oh, would you be the sort of person who would adapt themselves? And I was doing things at the same time that were like very much against masculinity, mm -hmm. and I was still doing those things. And so people would would read me like, oh, he doesn't care, you know, what other guys think, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just not true. And I, I doubt it's true for anyone, you know, everyone wants to fit into a certain extent and feels the costs of, mm. and, and starts to moderate their behavior if, they, if they're getting marked, marked out enough. Yeah, you, you said there that you were trying to, you, you, you were doing things that were very much a challenge to masculinity. Mm. What, what were some of those things, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, okay, so the most extreme example Go on. might be um, there was, uh, I went to like quite a posh school and we had like houses and house assembly. Mm -hmm. And in house assembly, the head of house said, we're doing an air guitar competition. Pick like five of the most like, you know, performancey kids. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I was obviously a performancey kid. Said yeah. like pick a song, you're gonna come up to fun, you're gonna to get to go do air guitar. Yeah. Um, I picked gay bar. Uh -huh. Um, <laughs> and I played a little electric banjo up here. Like <laughs> and I was in front of, you know, the whole house, which is like a quarter of the school. Yeah. Like singing and playing electric banjo to gay bar. And mm -hmm. I picked out the the most manly looking, like 
scary like opposite guy and they, they look like grown men to you at that point right yeah probably like a rugby player or something uh-huh. and I was like gyrating in front of him like <laughs> want to take me to the game bar <laughs> so like I don't know like people yeah. would see that and they'd be like there's a kid who's you know comfortable with his sexuality uh-huh. and masculinity and femininity and whatever yeah. and, and it's, to be fair some of it came later but I really did I really think even at the time like I was like people find this funny Mm-hmm. And you can get away with it because you're doing a joke and everyone knows you're doing a joke. Yeah. And like it makes other people uncomfortable and whatever. Mm-hmm. But again, that's what I mean by like, you can still do that and not be comfortable calling out your friend when he makes a sexist joke or like make a sexist joke yourself, right? Like, it, yeah. And it, I don't think it's really interesting to think about the compatibility between different forms of playing with gender and being very normative around gender. Mm-hmm. And, and and now I'm I'm more interested in challenging myself on those parts that mm-hmm. that are more challenging to you know hegemonic hege- how do you say that word hegemonic masculinity <laughs> yeah you shouldn't say a word if you don't know how to say it <laughs> yeah I mean we get it <laughs> I mean I, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a god that that actually it's I mean we grew up in such different parts of the world right mm, yeah but the way you're describing that experience of like the air banjo. Yeah. I would have seen examples of that. For me, my outlet was either doing theater or yeah. because there's always, you know, you're in a single sex school. So there's options to play all sort of like characters. You could play women, yeah. you could play. I mean, there's a whole gender spectrum to play with in that situation. Mm. Um, and we often gender swapped characters as well. So you had the opportunity to do that. But obviously, as soon as the theater, you know, the curtains are closed and you're out there in the school outside of the stage, you just have to really be yourself or well, be what you're expected to be. Mm. So now I'm very curious, and this is obviously ongoing. Mm. I think we'll continue to really own ourselves till the day we pass away. Yeah. What has the process since been like? And you you have my complete permission to go on a tangent because I know it's a yeah. very loaded question. Broad con, yeah. So maybe think about just like the ways you're exercising more of who you are, the way you maybe unpacked who you were. Just take it away, Henry. I think that it's been to do with politics. You know, mm-hmm. it's been to do with engaging with gender on a political level and first learning about feminism and you know I mean obviously you'd heard the concept feminism when you were 15 and a little dickhead but like first engaging with it properly Mm -hmm. you know quite late on I mean we're still young right but like Mm -hmm. I don't know maybe like 22 like nearing the end of of uni Mm -hmm. and you know, first being like, oh, wow, there's a lot of sexual violence mm-hmm. being experienced by predominantly women and people yeah. of marginalized genders. And then, oh, that sexual violence is being perpetrated by men. Yeah. And then connecting that up with, you know, things that I was doing mm-hmm. and that, you know, I could see in the world around me. So I came into it from from a political way and then just starting to feel like, I think lots of us are looking for permission, right? And I think there was a certain permission given by recognizing that masculinity in its mainstream form is doing harm. Yeah. It gave me a, a it gave me a, a way to say, okay, like playing with masculinity, mm-hmm. um, exploring my gender is actually a political good. And so like that's why I'm doing it, you know. Yeah. And maybe that it says something that I always need like an excuse, right? Mm-hmm. But still, that was like a way in. And I think 
what it's looked like for me is I think I know I said it was a narrativization, but I do think it's felt like a return mm-hmm. and a return to a younger version of me who was very, very sensitive mm-hmm. and who could cry because my little brother was crying, you know, and I think loads of kids can yeah. and lots of boys can and boys mm-hmm. are so sensitive early on in life just as sensitive as, as people of other genders right like it's, yeah. you can see it and I was you know just as such a sensitive little boy and so I, I think I've and I think this is you know related to what Bell Hook says about masculinity I think it's awful that men and boys are deadening their sensitivity yeah. their emotional feeling their the connection to the world through that felt psychological quality um the job is to like cage that up bottle it up cut it off put it somewhere else and that is so limiting in terms of your life and I think I already had this thing about like wanting to live life deeply yeah and I think lots of people talk to the importance of, of living life deeply and I think when caricature men talk about the importance of living mm-hmm. life deeply they mean like oh yeah you gotta jump off buildings get in loads of fights and stuff but like living life deeply is about feeling deeply yeah. and, you know, walking past some flowers and being like, you know, sniffing the roses as a caricature. But if you ever sniff the roses, because they smell <laughs> delightful. <Yeah. laughs> and it's such a good feeling. And if you can take every ounce of joy from those moments, mm-hmm. I think that's politically important. And I think it's at odds with masculinity. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, that's a broad answer. But I think I've been finding my way back and in so many different ways and areas and I think the priority is finding my way back through challenging what masculinity demands of men in their behavior towards mm. women and other men as well and yeah. you know non-binary people but like in terms of what it demands of us in terms of our interpersonal behavior yeah. but I, I you can't separate that from finding your way back in a in a in a deeper more personal sense that mm-hmm. because it's about caring right um yeah um what do you think your journey uh, around sort of masculinity is looking like at the moment? Maybe what's what's key to you, you know, because I'm sure something that was key to you three years ago or, mm-hmm. or wherever you, whenever you started this journey isn't the same now, but what, what, what are you looking at at the moment around your gender? So I, I have a catalyst, I think, like a very mm-hmm. pivotal moment, which like changed the way I live, essentially. Right. I was in a car accident when I was 18. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And up until that point... I think I was very much, I, 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 I have had a whole journey and I, I, I am quite curious what like maybe the most uncomfortable parts of unpacking that was for you. But for me, it was realizing the fact that I was carrying a lot of like, I was a dick to people in my life mm. you know, because being a dick was cool. Mm. And I was told that there, I was inadequate because I wasn't a dick enough to the women in my mm. life, the other boys in my life. If I wasn't picking up on the sensitive kids in school, I wasn't man enough. Mm. And that carried on till I went to college. I mean, my first relationship in college, in hindsight, was deeply problematic. And of course, you know, relationships have their issues, but a lot of issues were born out of my idea of not being able to express what I wanted, who I was. And for me, it's been a process of really looking at those uncomfortable parts of me and just putting him out there. Because I think... Mm. And this is a question that's been 
you know, circ I mean, it's occupied my gray space, gray matter, whatever the word is, headspace um, for such a long time. It's like, why is it that it's the men that are making the world an unsafe place for, mm. uh, I mean, at the time of recording this, the war in Ukraine is happening and, I, mm. you know, it's being perpetrated by a man with very difficult and problematic ideas of what it means to, I don't know, I mean, I'd be incredibly surprised if Putin was a vulnerable man. Mm. We, we, we have fucked up the world in a big way and I want to make sure, and this is the, I think the, the moment of like, I want to make sure that for not just my kids, obviously one day I would like to have kids, but like, mm -hmm. not just for my kids, it's for the people that come after me. It mm. could be, you know, could be so different. I want them to have a better place. So what am I doing to make this world a better place? Even if it's like 1%. Yeah. What am I doing to shift the, the dial, shift the window? Yeah, no, I believe strongly in that. And I think it's so I think it's so interesting with things that are a socially agreed contract, like masculinity. Mm -hmm. It gives the individual actually quite a lot of power because, and I think we've touched on this in our conversations, yeah. because everyone who questions masculinity and does so publicly yeah. just, you know, makes it easier for, for the next guy. And, it, and I really do believe in like building a, a critical mass that just shifts the, you know, yeah, shifts the expectations and, yeah. and, it, and we could expect so much more from one another, but we'll only get there by expecting more from ourselves. I put out, and I think there were two very good learning experiences out of this. I put out an essay in January. So I put out a personal essay every month mm. uh, and my essay was a letter on fatherhood. It was like an open letter. It was like, I am, you know, someday I'd like to think I'd have daughters and I don't want to want them to experience half the shit that women in our lives are experiencing mm. and two things and this was a learning experience the first one was obviously i don't even have to think about being a father to stand up and say these things like i should just say these things anyway uh, and mm. you shouldn't have to care for women in your lives to be like hey not all women should experience this mm. uh, but then the other one was and this was the really surprising one i got so many dms being like, so sorry, because one of the things that I put in was like, every woman that you know has had to walk home with like keys between their fists. Mm. And people were like, well, now you're just exaggerating. I know my wife walks home really peacefully. Mm. I was like, you think she does. Mm -hmm. but I promise you at one particular time in her life, she's been made to feel deeply uncomfortable by another man. Mm. One of my friends, we had a recent conversation about the male gaze. It's something that, you know, as men were like subconsciously maybe aware of. But to sit down and have a conversation with someone about how the male gaze affects them was like a learning experience for me. Mm. And I think the more we do this, I think any man listening to this or, you know, if, if, if you're sitting here listening to this episode, just ask the women in your life what their experiences have been. And I promise you, you leave with a lot more empathy about their experiences, but also more awareness yeah. about like how your peers may have been, you know, part of the I problem. I mean, I think that's good advice, but I also think men should be careful because yeah. men have a habit of, you know, when they mm -hmm. ask. I'm sure what, if you ask that question, I'm sure you'd ask it in a lovely manner. You give that advice to men in general, <laughs> we'll have people like, tell me, tell me your worst, you know, like, have, yeah, you, been, okay. yeah, have yeah. you been assaulted? But but no, I, I get your yeah. point. Just mm -hmm. And I mean, the main thing is, you know, if you if you would just look at the, the stats, you would know that, that all the women in your life have reason to be yeah. scared of men's violence right like have reason to feel unsafe and lots of them will have the majority will have some experience mm -hmm. of sexual violence or sexual threat or like street harassment you know yeah. like it, it, it's just you know it's statistical nonsense that like this doesn't apply to 
to the women yeah. around you. Of course, of course it is. But like, I, I interestingly, I think it's really. I know you said you kind of got like um, you, you had a learning experience because of mm-hmm. that essay. But I think it's there's a there's a vulnerability in in sort of learning in public, isn't there? There's a yeah. vulnerability in you being like, I've got some ideas formed. I'm going mm-hmm. to write them into an essay, and I'm going to put that out yeah. into the ether. And those that's what I currently think. Mm-hmm. And being willing to be like, you know, then like, oh, actually, th- this is wrong, and these are the reasons this is wrong. And being willing to accept that and talk about that and learn from that yeah. is another form of vulnerability, right? And I think, uh-huh. I, and I think that's great because I think there's there's a danger that people are becoming quite loath to do you, do you know what I mean like quite loath yeah. to learn learn in public and you know good that you're doing that I am actually quite curious because we we've talked about vulnerability quite a lot and this was one mm. of the things that I put up because I think I, I I think it's fair to say that you have really embraced your vulnerability as well and mm. I'm sure there's been a journey of it I I'd like to think I'm embracing my vulnerability as well mm. Why why do you think it's important for, I don't know, men to be vulnerable? I think it's it, an interesting caveat to all this is that mm-hmm. I get rewarded for my vulnerability mm-hmm. and not everyone does. And that's yeah. partly like who I'm surrounded by, the, the you know, the country existed. Do, do you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah. Obviously, there's lots wrong with the UK, but, but like being vulnerable for me has been great. And yeah. that's not to say that it's it's always easy to do. Mm-hmm. But like when I am vulnerable, I met with so much kindness. And the reason people often aren't is because they haven't been. And it, it is on men to 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 start being more vulnerable. Yeah. But at the same time, other men have to respond to that vulnerability in kind. And and I, mm-hmm. I and I find it hard to blame a man who has tried and has been met with ridicule. Yeah. And and so I think you know it's worth bearing in mind that there is just an element of sheer luck and privilege in my personal experience with mm. vulnerability but at the same time that's what makes it so brave yeah. that's why it takes courage mm. is because there are potential risks yeah. and i've been thinking a lot about how it'd be easy to get men on board with feminism mm-hmm. if there was someone to fight if there was someone to beat up <laughs> do you know what I mean like, like yeah. and, and there would still be men who would you know, defend sexism because it's serving them very well. And, mm-hmm. you know, that is a, a fair chunk of men. But, like, there are men who, if you could make it such that, like, they could contribute to feminism by beating up the right sexist man, mm-hmm. that would be very appealing to them. Yeah. But that's still doing masculinity. And I'm not saying, like, oh, violence is never the answer. Mm-hmm. Personally, I don't believe that. Yeah. But at the same time, violence isn't usually the answer. <laughs> like, yeah. what, what we need from most men is to do masculinity differently and vulnerability is a part of that Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because I think a fair few men are vulnerable with just their romantic partner Mm -hmm. and they think that that's them doing good feminism Mm -hmm. but then often they're just putting all of their emotional stuff on one person and just like offloading and like here take this you know and some men look for romantic relationships for that reason like take my shit and and you know offloading in potentially like not a healthy way yeah. and you know and then again it's women doing the work right it's mm-hmm. it's um if, if they're in a heterosexual relationship it, it's going to be a woman doing the work the dealing with and, and then they're not reciprocating that work it's not a two-way street right yeah. so again like another caveat to vulnerability but all that aside like men need to be vulnerable with other men 
and doing so gives those other men permission to be vulnerable with you and you can yeah. create these little networks of care and that's absolutely what we need and a space in which you can say i'm hurting is also likely to be a space in which you can say oh buddy like i didn't think that joke was very funny like it, mm-hmm. it, it contributes to you know some pretty harmful myths yeah. about you know women uh, do, do you know what i mean it's, it's all I connected know. it really is so i think it's so important for men to be vulnerable because it's brave it has costs but it works mm-hmm. it builds resilience actually makes us, us stronger yeah and that resilience will let us do the things that we need to do to make this world a better place yeah, no, I actually, as you were saying that the thing that's kind of coming up for me is the I think we need more men to hold space when other men are being vulnerable. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we're often asking men to to reach out yeah. um, and we have to be asking men to be there when other men reach out. And I 100% agree. I think there's an element of privilege and sheer luck as well to be able to express your vulnerability as a man and then find people in your life who, who aren't shunning you and just are holding that space. And of course, you mm. will meet people who will be like, ah, oh, stop being, I, and I hate the word, but like, stop being such a pussy. Yeah. But for, for every one of that man, if you have a few that can hold that space, I think it's incredible. But I'm, I'm now actually wondering, and I don't know if either one of us will have a sufficient answer to this, but I'm just going to jam with this. Sure. How do we create a space for more men? Or how do we allow for more men? Or how do we educate more men to hold that space for their other, like, I don't know, boys. Mm. And right from like young boys in schools who would maybe reach out to their teachers to us or like, you know, when I don't know, when we're both 80 and, you know, walking with a cane in a park, how do we still continue to hold that space for the men who would be vulnerable? Yeah, it's a good question. What do you you have any theories? I really believe it's the grassroots bit. I can think of individual men. My house director in my boarding house was absolutely one of those men where you could go up to him crying and he'd hold that space for you. Mm. But he was one out of like the other 60 male teachers in the school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't think he was ridiculed for it, but he was definitely seen as like, oh. Yeah. And also like, oh, go to to him, you know, like, you know, oh, you're crying, go to that guy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I think we got really lucky with that regard. So I think a few of us since graduating have been able to be those men because we saw a man do that. Exactly. So I think we're point we're coming back to the same thing again and again, which uh-huh. is that like if you set an example, it can spread. Yeah. So all you can do is a certain example, and you can set an example of both being vulnerable and and responding to other people's vulnerabilities. Yeah. But no, it it is hard, and it and obviously it goes deep, and there's like this trope of like, oh, I couldn't possibly see my dad cry. Mm-hmm. and stuff like that and and that's like such a normal thing to say and it's like yeah. okay so who is your dad supposed to cry in front do you know what I mean like yeah it's interesting it's like an acceptable you know but yeah it should be because you know men aren't doing this work and mm-hmm. women are picking it up you know are picking up that slack and, yeah. and and are often who men are flowed to mm-hmm. and they carry a lot of men's trauma around yeah. with them as well as their own so yeah I guess it's about just, yeah, so it's about just being clear yeah. and, you know, being really careful because mm-hmm. sometimes someone reaching out can look quite subtle. Yeah. And so spotting those signs and really like rewarding them. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes you're going to have an experience of being like, 
oh, it sounds like you're really struggling with that. You know, you say something like that because someone, you know, it's like, oh, so-and-so's, you know, yeah. on my back or something, you know. Yeah. sounds like you're really struggling with that. And then the dude's going to be like, what are you on about? <laughs> you know, like, what are you <laughs> yeah. talking about? Like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, stop being such a, you know, a Sally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that's like, that's not the biggest cost um, mm-hmm. in life, but it's, it is a cost. And, and like, I think we... We're, when we name these costs, it's actually quite important because I think, you know, being like, oh, it can actually be quite hard, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, it's not as hard as not being able to walk home safe late at night, but it, yeah. but it, it, it can be hard. Absolutely. I think every, it's the, I mean, if there's anyone out there with better ideas, I'm actually very open to hearing them because I, I would like to, I don't know, it's the same thing. I think I'd like to leave the world better than I found it. Mm. I think it's every drop in the bucket counts. I think every yeah. creative piece that you create, every conversation of this nature that we have, every other man out there that we can hold a space for, I think that's adding to, that's better than they would have had initially or they would have been. And there are more formal versions. There are like groups that people can Absolutely. go to. And I've seen like these men's sheds, which sound like incredible things. Mm-hmm. And and you could find a, a formal way to, and you know, you um, through your work mm-hmm. will i'm sure be a, an excellent example of someone who who men can talk to i hope so well a, a therapist who's okay you know listening to yeah. men be vulnerable i think that's part of the job in fairness it is part of the job but i'm sure you know therapists bring their own biases right uh-huh. like they're I'm, I'm sure like men have had bad experiences with therapists 100%. where they tried to open up and and been met with Mm-hmm. You, you know and it, it will be subtle and, and we pick up on subtle things don't we i can imagine freud not being very open to vulnerability with other men <laughs> just gonna put it yeah. out there all the freudians can come after me with this but i <laughs> i will hold this torch i'm curious then <laughs> there's so much there's so much yeah. to kind of touch on there but i think to we we talked about creating and we talked about kind of you know all these it, it comes back to us doing our individual bit in many ways why do you create henry big big question I create and maybe it's a bit vain because I think I have something to say. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, I think everyone has something to say. So mm-hmm. that's why I think it's it's not vain. But like I have ideas that I want to express. Yeah. And I've tried different routes to, to expressing those ideas. You know, I, I mm-hmm. thought I was going to be an academic philosopher mm-hmm. and people might not see the connections between that and being an internet cartoonist. But for me, my creativity is always conceptual um i'm always like you know all art says something mm-hmm. but i think some art is trying to say something very abstract and often i'm trying to say something very on the nose and then i just draw a cartoon that says it very on the nose uh-huh. so i think i create because it's it's the ways that i've found to um express what mm-hmm. i want to sp- express about the world and I, and again like through like a bit of vanity I want to change people and change minds and hearts and behavior through what I create. And Mm -hmm. like, I do have that ambition, you know, and um, that is definitely a part of of everything I do. Um, You know, I'm trying to write TV series and films now. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a constant balancing act between like... I'm just going to have the character say exactly what I think (laughs) and telling a story, which is obviously the more important part. Uh-huh. So yeah, I think I create because I have often quite philosophical slash political things to say, and it's the best means through which I've found to communicate those ideas. And and it, and it, I think it's quite effective at changing minds as well. 
and you're 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 one heck of a creative mate if i do oh, say thank so you. yeah 100 um i would be remiss though if i i didn't bring billy into the conversation <laughs> because yeah you I mean, billy, yeah billy billy's in the room right now she is yeah but a lot of i mean she's on your cover She's not on the cover of my book. There's a different dog on the cover of my book. Ah. She, she was she was quite annoyed about we had work. <laughs> okay, well uh, she she should be annoyed. God damn yeah. it, I missed opportunity. She's, she's my profile picture, right? Yeah. She's like that's maybe what you're thinking of. She's on like uh, uh, yeah. social media. She's my little profile picture. Uh-huh. Yeah, I wanted a chunky dog on the cover <laughs> of the book, and there was there was some thought that went into that as well. I wanted one of those dogs that people are scared of uh-huh. because I find those dogs really interesting as well because dogs are like you know i have a very positive view of human nature and some people challenge me on this but like dogs like humans are born ready to be loving and kind and affectionate Mm -hmm. and we associate violence with certain dogs and that has far more to do with you know how the humans who pick that particular breed of dog raise them but also it's just some of our own like racist classist biases around who owns certain dogs oh like that's a dangerous dog yeah. how the dog looks as well things like that so yeah i was i was doing politics even with putting that <laughs> chunky okay. um you know yeah bully breed dog on the front adam i didn't know this well this mm. this is a fun bit of trivia but uh yeah. Bill, billy is very central and dogs are very central to your life yeah yeah billy comes up a lot in my work so so here's a question again a very vulnerable one as well what does billy mean to you billy means everything to me she is so important in my life and my work and i live with the two most incredible beings that exist in this world and i'm very lucky in that i've got my partner kitty who is amazing and the the kindest person in the world and you know as we go back to like what i've said today a lot of my learning actually came through kitty Mm -hmm. i think i'm i'm loath to you know when i'm asked like how did you get where you are with masculinity i don't want to be like oh you know it was because of my girlfriend because again that kind of leads back into sorry getting off topic again no no go on um but that's you know that's uh it's not tr- true like you know there was work on my own part but it's also i don't want it to be the case that people get a feminist girlfriend and that's how they become a feminist do you know what i mean uh-huh. but yeah and then billy who we both love incredibly deeply and seeing kitty fall in love with billy has been a real pleasure in my yeah. life because i met billy when i was 14 uh-huh. and she's now 14 yeah and showing her age and we're a little bit worried about her we think we might be in the final season of her life yeah and yeah she's she's defined so much of my life because yeah like i did start cartooning under the moniker drawings of dogs mm-hmm. um and at that stage i literally just drew dogs saying amusing things to one another and i did that because of billy yeah. and i always loved dogs but really until i got my own dog i didn't become quite as obsessed um and i'd been begging for a dog for years and then yeah met billy and she's she's interesting because she's um i I think she's got such a personality and i think this is a thing that you realize about non-human animals when you spend enough time with them that like like us they're individuals yeah and billy is like a real individual um and she's quite independent you know people say people look like their dogs yeah i don't think billy looks like me i think she looks more like kitty mm-hmm. but in terms of her mental health <laughs> she's really taken after me she's an anxious being uh-huh. she wants people around but wants them to be 
a little distance away from her. Okay. So Billy's dream scenario is that Kitty and I are in the house and no one else is in the house. Uh-huh. But we're in the room next door to her and she's asleep <laughs> in her bed. But I'm not now actually having a little cough. And that I can very much relate to. You know, she she's not like a really affectionate dog. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what she's done for me as well, she's she helped me in like some very difficult patches in my life and kept me in and of this world yeah. through her personality, through her um, neediness <laughs> yeah. in her very indistinctive way. If you want me to, I can talk about Billy for three hours now. <laughs> no, but it's, uh, I, I got like, I don't know, I got an emotional there just listening to you mm. talk about Billy. Because I think for anybody, and we joked about this in the call we did before we recorded, of like people who are like, oh, I'm not a dog person. Well, that's the reason why dogs are great. I'm sorry. That's the, <laughs> that's the reason why dogs are just great. Mm. To kind of, I suppose, wrap up our call, then this is, again, two, two very interesting questions that I tend to ask or try and ask all of my guests, which is if you could travel back in time, mm. but if you could travel back to like 10 year old Henry and you have an hour, you have an hour to do and talk about whatever you would like to, what would you say? Hmm. I think the most general purpose answer, which probably applies to almost everyone, mm-hmm. is be yourself, stay yourself, mm-hmm. because you're going to spend a lot of time trying to get back to this self. And also, at some point, people are going to like that self. You know, you're going to meet the people who celebrate that self. And that's partly just growing up. That's partly just once we stop being teenagers, everyone gets a little bit more accepting of others. Not everyone, but on the whole. But it's also that you find your people, right? It's also that you find, you know, you probably are going to try and fit in to a certain extent. Like, you're not going to listen to this old guy (laughs) (laughs) why are you still so short henry (laughs) we were gonna get really tall at some point weren't we i'm sorry mate that little shit (laughs) yeah so clearly i just argue with my 10 year old self but um but no like he's probably not to listen but like but even just knowing that like you know you're going to try and get back to this version of you because trying to fit in is going to sort of estrange you from yourself Mm-hmm. Would would be worth worth him knowing. Yeah, tell him the lottery numbers. Yeah, that'd be that'd be. I mean, <laughs> on, from a from a very practical point of view, yes, lottery numbers, or <laughs> even like, hey, buy Bitcoin when you can when it's five dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be loads of easy workarounds like that. <laughs> um, but no, that's not the spirit of the question. You know, yeah, I, I just want him to know that like he can be liked as he is and even more than that like he is valuable as he is and Mm -hmm. he is a worthwhile person as he is and yeah yeah that's it oh one more thing what sorry one more thing is i think another really simple way to express it is like other people are going to have different interests to you and that's fine Mm -hmm. and like i think it's so easy when you're young to mistake the things that other people around you are interested in and for like the right things to be interested in yeah and you know i wish i hadn't wasted so much time on that but you know it's you, you're finding your way now which yeah is, and, and yeah. that is growing up and, and honestly in some ways i wouldn't change anything you know like if you're happy with where you are now mm-hmm. you kind of had to you had to be all the versions of you that you were in between what would you say to your 10 year old self have you already well, answered i've never been asked this question asked, okay what would you say 
you don't have an hour you have a minute <laughs> okay i have a minute um ooh, this is a this is a hard one but i think two things you won't be around for a lot of losses in your life mm. but just know that that's okay and that you were loved anyway uh, mm. i lost all my grandparents when i wasn't home oh that's so hard yeah yeah so so th there's that one so just telling the, the the young you that like you know it's gonna that's gonna suck like, there's no way that can't suck but like yeah they knew that you love you and I think I'd also say, you know, just just treat your goodbyes with all their earnestness. I, I got to do it. Mm. So so I have a dog as well that I've been mm. around since I was 16. Mm. And like in moving to London, leaving her has been one of the hardest things because she's really old now. And yeah. it's 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 very difficult. Um, so we got to say our goodbye. We got to mm. just lay around um, lick. Well, she licked my face. Um, <laughs> you didn't lick her face. No, no, no. I just, I just planted kisses. That's, that's how we do this. But yeah, I think okay. I'd say to my ten-year-old self, listen, it's okay to, to let people go. Just treat them with respect every chance you get, and treat them with love. And the other thing I'd say is similar to what you said, because I've had a whole journey of like trying to come into my own and be who I am, and I was so ashamed for the things that I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. So I tell that kid to still play the guitar, still, you know, sing and do theater and dance if he can, mm. uh, because at some one day you'll find your people who will be like, yeah, you should absolutely dance. Uh, you have ridiculous yeah. moves and they're out of rhythm, but <laughs> you should dance because it makes you happy. How's your how's your singing voice? Is that, oh, is I, that good? I, I, I'm not going to be modest at all. I have the voice of an angel. Uh, do you? <laughs> I oh, really amazing. do. Oh. <laughs> I can imagine uh, that for some reason. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I, I I can sing quite well. I believe it. See, I love to sing, but I am quite bad at it. Um, I, I was kicked out of two choirs as a young uh, lad because I just couldn't couldn't hack it. <laughs> I mean, Henry, we're just gonna have to make a band. You can bring in your <laughs> ukulele and banjo. I can my bring in my guitar. My invisible ukulele. <laughs> I can't play it real well. I'll be electric guitar, you know, okay. air guitar hype man. Yeah, okay, brilliant, brilliant. And we'll, I'll we'll... also sing, but it will be atrocious. We'll, we'll make it work. It'll be great. Uh, yeah. I have one last question then before we, before we close shop, before we do the outro. Mm. So we, we already went back to the past self, but now you're 10 years in the future. You know, you've, you've got a couple of TV mm. shows out there. You've won your oh. awards. You're, oh. you, 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 you even more books. You're, you're doing great, which is all of what I wish and hope for you. Yeah. Um, but what is your hope for yourself? The problem with this is I am a sucker for, for fantasizing. You know, you've got me right in my territory. You've got like your I, BAFTA speech ready. I like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've prepped like what drink I'm going to have on the Graham Norton show. Yeah. You know? um, which would be, you know, a nice Scotch whiskey. Um, yeah. Maybe an old fashioned, actually. Old fashioned is very good. Um, but so, yeah, like you're telling me that, like, you know, I've been to the BAFTAs. Like, this is this is the good stuff. Mm -hmm. um my hope for myself is some of it is just that i would like to be making a more stable living from mm -hmm. the work that i want to do and that's just like a basic practical thing i'd just like us to feel like more stable um financially yeah. which sucks you know but um but for and I, like i can't imagine a future where i'm not with kitty uh -huh. and i so I desperately want to be in our tree house together, Kitty and I. Mm -hmm. But on a more personal level, which I think is what the question is getting at, 
I would want to be still living in accordance with my values. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when all the, the fame and the riches come, <laughs> no, I think I just really, I, you see people get older and shift away from a lot of the beliefs that they held when they were younger. Mm-hmm. And I think I can see some of the pure economic incentives that, that motivate that. But I, I really hope I'm living more in accordance with my values than I am now. I really hope I've built a life because it's like the work of a lifetime to get to a place where you, you're you living in a way that you're proud of. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm a warrior, so I've also got to not overthink that, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that, that can be like pressure that I'm putting on myself. Yeah. But I think, um, yeah, I think just like a, a, a deep sense of, you know, I back the life that I'm living yeah. um, and that I'm surrounded by the people and non-human animals that I love. Yeah. <laughs> Billy's, Billy's done another 10 years. <laughs> as well. We're doing a 10th anniversary podcast and yeah. Billy, Billy's there. Yeah. <laughs> Billy's barking in the background. Um, <laughs> what about you? What, what, what's your 10 years? This sounds very basic, but I just want to be happy and be authentic to who I am. No, I don't think that's basic. And I, I think... It's not even what we're encouraged to aspire mm-hmm. to, you know? I mean, I'd be happy if I have an Oscar, you know, for what I <laughs> yeah. do not know. But listen, I'd be happy. Because <laughs> you did the soundtrack on the movie for which I got my best picture. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We, we, we got this. Uh, but no, I think, obviously, I'd like my art to make a difference to people. Yeah. I, I'd want to be doing good with what I have, be that my art, be that my money, be that with my time. I, family, I, you, you, yeah. you aspire to, you know. Yeah. And I told you my dream. I want a coffee shop with a creative collective. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so that'll be 10 years I like from now. Yeah, I, yeah. I would love a lovely cafe somewhere in the outskirts of London where like, I can still get into the city for all the live shows and gigs and musicals. But yeah. I live in the peace and quiet of the country and have a lovely coffee shop where I get to jam with artists, help support creative expression and continue to do more podcasts and more writing and i don't know have have an army of dogs that are just yeah. running around the place i think that'll be yeah. that'll be my dream for 10 years from now that's a beautiful dream and i i see it coming through i uh i back that dream i think it will i think a version of of, of your cafe will will happen thank you henry uh but to henry in front of me right now i do also just i i hope so much for you mate like honestly um and I'd be very curious to see where each one of us is 10 years from now, but I hope mm. we're still in touch. That is that yeah. is my hope. But thank you. It it means so much to me to be able to have this conversation with you. Where can people find you if they want to follow your work, if they want to, I don't know, just see what you're up to? Yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as Henry J. Garrett. I'm not posting very much at the moment because, yeah, I, I've been focusing on non-instagrammable things but yeah. you know if, if you want to know what i'm up to i will still alert people on there to anybody listening in i will leave all of henry's social links in the description along with a link to his book and thank you again henry for coming on the episode thank you for having me thank you for listening to this episode we have another episode out next week on the wednesday And if you like what we do and the work that we're putting out, do consider joining our Patreon. Till then, this has been Love and Citizenship, and I will catch you in the next one.